Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for April, May and June 2012, titled Major Lessons from Minor Prophets. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 7 for May 11-17, to 17, God's Special People, Micah. Sabbath Afternoon, May 11. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again, and it's in a new book, in the book of Micah. And here, Lord, we'd like to thank you for all you have done for us individually and as a people. And as we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be there to guide us and to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our memory text this week is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's Micah 6, 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And the key thought for this week is... Even amid the worst apostasy, the Lord was willing to forgive and heal his people. The prophet Micah ministered in one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. The country long had been divided into two kingdoms. Finally, Assyria put an end to the northern kingdom, and Micah could see evil and violence creeping into Judah in the south. He preached against the fatal sins of dishonesty, injustice, bribery, and mistrust. Micah also was the first biblical prophet to predict the destruction of Jerusalem in Micah chapter 3, verse 12. Yet, through divine inspiration, the prophet saw light in this dark time. With the help of God's perspective, he looked beyond the coming punishment. Micah offered encouraging words and said that the Lord's anointed leader would come from Bethlehem. The Messiah would be the leader who would save Israel and speak peace to the nations by teaching them to beat their swords into plowshares, chapter 4, verse 3. God's rebuke would be the channel of restoration and ultimate blessings. Sunday, May 12, Agony of the Prophet's Heart. First of all, let's read Micah chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. 
all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Therefore I will wail and howl, I will go stripped and naked, I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches, for her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah, it has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. In Micah chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, the prophet invites the whole earth to witness God's judgments against sinful people. The capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem are singled out because their leaders failed to be role models of what it means to follow God with undivided hearts. These two cities would be the first to suffer destruction. The thought of destructive judgment produced a real tension in Micah's life. Because his prophetic call united him with God's purpose, he had no choice but to announce what was coming in the near future. But the prophet also loved the people to whom he belonged, and the idea of their captivity drove him to personal lament. Oftentimes, bad news had the most devastating effect on the mind and the body of the prophet. Question. What do the following texts teach about the hard lot of the prophets? First of all, Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 to 15. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant, and why have I not found favour in your sight, that you had laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom, as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat, that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now, if I have found favour in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. And we'll also have a look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 and verses 1 to 4. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came, and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And then Jeremiah chapter 8 and verses 21, right through to chapter 9, verse 2. For the hurt of the daughter of my people I am hurt, I am mourning, astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery? 
for the health of the daughter of my people. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travellers, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men. And then Ezekiel chapter 24 Verses 15 to 18. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run drown. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head, and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips, and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. And then in the New Testament, in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often... From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the sea, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. One of those should have been in perils in the city. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. God's prophets were involved very much in the messages that they proclaimed. They did not enjoy speaking about the terrible things that would happen. They often used laments to express their reactions to the coming disasters. Their pain was real. To their listeners, the message was contained both in the prophetic words and also in the external signs, which often betrayed a deep pain stemming from within. Micah's reaction to divine judgment reminds one of Isaiah, who, for three years, walked half-naked and barefoot as a visible sign of the shame that captivity would bring. For those who have the resources, you can read about the great suffering that Ellen G. White suffered in her ministry as well. This will help us to better understand what these servants of God had to go through. And so, to finish today, read First Peter chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and then look at yourself and whatever trials you are going through. How much suffering has come to you because of your faithfulness to God? How much has come due to your unfaithfulness? First Peter chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter.
Monday, May 13, Those Who Devise Iniquity Question. Read Micah chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 and Micah chapter 3. What are the sins that threaten to bring judgment upon these people? Beginning in chapter 2 verse 1. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. In that day one shall take up a proverb against you, and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. How he has removed it from me. To a turncoat he has divided our fields. Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by, like men returned from war. The women of my house you cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children. You have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of his people. And then chapter 3. And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from my, their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them to pieces like meat for the pot, like a flesh in the cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, because they have been evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and right, might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Now hear this. The heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of 
the forest. Writing in Prophets and Kings, page 322, Ellen White pens, The accession of Ahaz to the throne brought Isaiah and his associates face to face with conditions more appalling than any that had hitherto existed in the realm of Judah. Many who had formerly withstood the seductive influence of idolatrous practices were now being persuaded to take part in the worship of heathen deities. Princes in Israel were providing or proving untrue to their trust. False prophets were arising with messages to lead astray. Even some of the priests were teaching for hire, yet the leaders in apostasy still kept up the forms of divine worship and claimed to be numbered among the people of God. The prophet Micah, who bore his testimony during these troublous times, declared that sinners in Zion, while claiming to lean upon the Lord and blasphemously boasting, is not the Lord among us, none evil can come upon us, continued to build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. One of the constant problems that the Hebrew nation faced was the deception that their special status as God's people, their knowledge of the true God, as opposed to the silliness of the pagan idolatry, as recorded in Psalm 115, made them somehow immune to divine retribution. Let's have a look at Psalm 115 and verses 4 to 9. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see it. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The terrible truth, however, was that it was precisely because they had special status before God that they would be deemed that that much more guilty for their sins. Time and again, such as in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord warned them that all the blessings, protection and prosperity that would be theirs were dependent upon obedience to his commands, such as seen in this caution in Deuteronomy 4.9. Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. So to finish the day, however much we might try to fool ourselves, in what ways are we, as Seventh-day Adventists, with so much light, in danger of making this same error? Tuesday, May 14. A new ruler from Bethlehem. In Micah's book, the mood often drastically changes from gloom to sublime hope. This hope is seen in one of the most famous of all the messianic prophecies. Question. Read Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Who is being spoken about here and what does this teach us about him? But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, 
Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Also, we need to have a look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Also, John chapter 8 and verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Out of a little Judean town would come someone from eternity to be a ruler in Israel. Micah 5.2 is one of the most precious biblical verses written in order to strengthen the hope of the people who eagerly awaited the ideal leader promised by the prophets. His rule would usher a time of strength, justice and peace. Let's look at a few other verses there. Micah chapter 5 and verses 4 to 6. And that reads, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. David was a native of Bethlehem, a town also called Ephratar in Genesis 35.19. The mention of this town stresses the humble origin of both David and his future successor, who would be the true shepherd of his people, as we read in Micah 5.4. In the humblest town of Bethlehem, the prophet Samuel anointed Jesse's youngest son, David, who was to be king over Israel. We read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. 
So it was, when they came, that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And then in First Samuel chapter 17 and verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. When the wise men were looking for the newly born king of the Jews, King Herod asked the Bible experts where to search in Matthew chapter 2. They referred him to this passage which foretold that the Messiah would come from the small town of Bethlehem. As incomprehensible as it is to our finite and fallen minds, that baby born was the eternal God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. As Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 19, from the days of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ was one with the Father. However incredible the idea, it is one of the most foundational truths in Christianity. The Creator took upon Himself humanity, and in that humanity offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. If you take the time to dwell upon what this teaches us about both the value of our lives and what we as individuals mean to God, you can have a life-changing experience. While so many people struggle to find purpose and meaning to their existence, we have the foundation of the cross, which not only anchors us in what our lives mean, but also gives us the hope of something greater than that which this world ever could offer. Wednesday, May 15. What is good? In the beginning of Micah chapter 6, God dialogues with his people, listing all the things that he has done on their behalf. In response, the worshipper who comes into the temple asks what he might do to please God. What is it that constitutes an acceptable offering? Year-old calves, a multitude of rams, rivers of oil, or even the worshipper's firstborn child? There is a steady progression of the size and value of the offerings listed in this text. Question. 
What crucial truth is being taught here in Micah chapter 6 verses 1 to 8? Why is this especially important for us as Seventh-day Adventists? What does this tell us about how truth is more than just correct doctrine and detailed understanding of prophecy? Also compare it with Matthew 23, 23. First of all, Micah 6, verse 1. Now hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and at the hills hear your voice. Hear, O ye mountains, the Lord's complaint, and the strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you might know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And we'll compare that with Matthew chapter 23, and verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The prophet declares that God already had revealed what he wants. Through the teachings of Moses, the people know what God has graciously done for them. We read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. So Micah's answer is not a new revelation that signals a change in God's requirements. Sacrifices and priestly services are not God's first concern. God's supreme wish is to have a people who act in justice toward their neighbours with consistent devotion and love toward the Lord. The most extravagant offering that people can give to God is obedience. Micah 6.8 is the most succinct statement of God's will for his people. It summarizes all prophetic teachings on true religion, a life displaying justice, mercy and a close walk with God. Justice is something that people do when prompted by God's Spirit. It has to do with fairness and equality for all, especially the weak and powerless who are exploited by others. Kindness means to freely and willingly show love, loyalty and faithfulness to others. Walking with God means to put God first and to live in conformity with His will. So to finish today, why is it easier to keep the Sabbath strictly than it is to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly before God?
Thursday, May 16, Into the Depths of the Sea Micah's book begins with a description of judgments, but it ends with words of hope. There are people who try to explain away or deny the reality of God's judgments. To do so is to fall into the trap that Micah's contemporaries did, those who believed that God never would send judgments on the chosen nation. God's justice is the other side of his love and concern. The good news presented by Micah is that punishment is never God's last word. God's action in Scripture consistently moves from judgment to forgiveness, from punishment to grace, and from suffering to hope. Question. Read Micah chapter 7 verses 18 to 20. How is the gospel revealed in these verses? What hope is seen here for all of us? Why do we need it so desperately? Beginning with verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us, and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Micah's closing verses present his praise filled with hope. The question, who is like God, matches Micah's name, which means, who is like God. It serves as a reminder of the uniqueness of God and affirms the truth that there is no one like him. How could there be, after all, he alone is the Creator. Everything else is created. Even more important, our Creator is a God of grace, of forgiveness, a God who went to the most unimaginable extremes possible in order to save us from the destruction that is rightly ours. He did it for the Hebrew nation, and He will do it for us as well. It is possible that we today are surrounded by difficult circumstances and painful experiences that leave us to wonder why God allows all this to happen. Sometimes it is just so hard to make sense of things. In such times, our hope rests only with the Lord who promises to hurl our sins into the depths of the sea. There is hope for the future in remembering what God has done in the past. And so to finish today... Take a good hard look at yourself. Why is your only hope found in the promise that God will cast your sins into the depths of the sea? Friday May 17. From the book Desire of Ages, page 577, we read, If Jerusalem had known what it was her privilege to know, and had heeded the light which heaven had sent her, she might have stood forth in the pride of prosperity, the queen of kingdoms, free in the strength of her God-given power. There would have been no armed soldiers standing at her gates. The glorious destiny that might have blessed Jerusalem had she accepted her Redeemer rose before the Son of God. He saw that she might, through him, have been healed of her grievous malady, liberated from bondage and established as the mighty metropolis of the earth. From her walls the dove of peace would have gone forth to all nations. She would have been the world's 
diadem of glory. And that brings us to our three discussion questions. One, if you want to understand in a more modern context the suffering that God's prophets often endured, read from the book Life Sketches by Ellen G. White. What does this book teach about the toils and trials that God's faithful messengers can face? Two, it is so easy to get caught up in religious forms, traditions and rituals, all of which may be fine. At the same time, though, what happens when these forms and rituals become ends in themselves instead of pointing us toward what it truly means to be a follower of the God whom we worship with those forms? And three, dwell more on the whole idea of the Incarnation, the idea that the Creator God took upon Himself our human flesh. As one medieval theologian wrote, Retaining all that he was, Christ took upon himself what he wasn't, and that is our humanity. Think about what this amazing truth reveals about God's love for us. Why should this truth fill us with hope, gratitude and praise, regardless of our circumstances? And that brings us to Inside Story, our mission story for this week. It's titled Mysterious Television Truth. Mandela Hector lives in Trinidad. He had no special interest in religion. Then his cousin invited him to attend his church, and Mandela realized that God wanted to be part of his life. He bought a Bible and began reading it. Questions arose in his mind that his cousin's pastor couldn't answer, so Mandela searched elsewhere for answers. He discovered a religious television station and began watching it. A sermon on prophecy caught his interest. He was impressed that the speaker's message was based on the Bible. Mandela read each Bible text for himself and was convinced that the words were from God. One evening, the speaker talked about how the Sabbath had been changed to Sunday long after Jesus had died and rose again. Mandela realized that the Sabbath wasn't Sunday, but Saturday. He told his boss that he would no longer work on Saturdays, but because he knew of no church that worshipped on the Sabbath, he rested at home that day and worshipped with his cousin on Sundays. When Mandela realized that the station was affiliated with Seventh-day Adventists, he found a church in town. On Sabbath morning, he got up early, eager to celebrate the Sabbath in God's house. When one member learned that a television program had brought Mandela to the church, he was amazed because Adventist television wasn't generally available in Trinidad at that time. Only then did Mandela realize that God had provided the television signal in one small neighborhood where he lived so that he could learn God's truths. A few months later, Mandela cemented his relationship with Christ through baptism. He wanted to share his new faith with others. He discovered Seventh-day Adventist books and began reading. When he learned about literature evangelists, he knew he had found his calling. He quit his job to work for God. Although not everyone wanted his books, Mandela saw God leading him. He met people who told him they had dreamed that a man would come with a book or a magazine to answer their questions just before Mandela arrived. This is truly God's ordained work, Mandela says. When I think of how God led me to his truth, I'm amazed that he could care so much for one person. 
I want to share that with others. Our mission offerings bring God's message to people in many different ways. Mandela and millions of others thank you for sharing God's truths with them through your mission offering. This reading has been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. It is worth remembering that God is always faithful.